Welcome to the HC Insider Podcast, a podcast dedicated to the commodities sector and the people within it. I'm your host, Paul Chapman. Today we're talking food and the agricultural markets. Demand is increasing as a result of demographics. Demand's also changing with consumer tastes. The last time we saw such a rise in agricultural prices, back in the late 2000s, which saw political instability and threats to how the agricultural markets operated. Now we're back in a period of rising prices, driven not only by demographics, but also biofuels and the demand for sustainability. How can the agricultural markets meet this demand? What does it mean for the incumbents? And what are some of the solutions that are needed? And also some predictions for what happens in the markets over the next 10 years. Our guest is Soren Schroeder. Soren's been in and around the agricultural markets for over 35 years. He was the former CEO of Bungie and sits on the board of many agricultural organizations and is a private investor in the space as well. As always, you can support the show by leaving us a positive review on the platform you're listening on. And I hope you enjoy the episode. Soren, thanks for joining. You're welcome, Paul. So we've got a big topic. We're talking about increasing demand and changing demand in the in the agri and nutrition world what that means for prices what that means for inflation and the last time we saw inflation and what opportunities this creates uh, going forwards how the agri world is going to meet this increasing demand and what it also means for challenges around doing that in a sustainable fashion so i guess before we <laughs> dig too far in could you just frame us up the case for increasing demand for agricultural products yeah i mean i think Paul, some of it is going to be as it has been the last 20, 30 years, meaning that it's a combination of demographics and and economic wealth per capita income that drives most of it. And it's been very predictable, actually, if you go back 30 years, you could have modeled a lot of the growth we've seen uh, fairly accurately, uh, just looking at per capita consumption of various types of food groups, per capita income in those countries that have grown the fastest, particularly you know, Asia, uh, leading leading with China, of course, but also the Middle East. And you would have been able to predict, I think, more or less where we are now. And I think that'll continue, you know, 3 to 5% annual growth in protein and vegetable oils, a little bit less in carbohydrates, because that's, that is not what you consume more of as you become wealthier. I think that is in store for many years to come. I know some some forecasters are suggesting that by 2050, we have to double double food production in the world. I don't know if that's the right number, but it is certainly in the right direction. I can I can definitely see the next 10 years of sort of more of what we have been seeing, you know, three to five percent annual growth. And that'll that'll get you to at least 50% growth from where we are now. So no matter how you look at it, it is a massive, it's a massive challenge for the world to produce that extra food. And as you mentioned, it's not just producing more calories now, it's also producing those calories in a sustainable way. And uh, also with a view towards producing food that is truly nutritious. So it's it's that combination of nutrition, uh, sustainability, climate-friendly practices on top of c- producing just enough calories that has presented or that is presenting this new opportunity, I, I'd say. Uh, and, and I don't think it is by any means a, a, uh, a negative. Uh, I think it's all for the good and I think it is all solvable. We'll get into that a little bit later on. But on top of this, sort of fairly predictable annual increases in demand. We have 
really since the beginning of the 2000s had periods where you've had sort of demand shocks or shifts in demand based on the link between agricultural products and fuel, energy, climate-friendly energy. Those are proving to be very difficult to fully pr predict the impact of, uh, but they have profound consequences. So you can go back and look at uh, the early 2000s in Europe where biodiesel became the thing. And in essentially, you know, I believe something close to 60, 70 percent of all the rapeseed produced in Europe and the massive expansion that happened during that period was all about the oil going into biodiesel. I mean, it was a, it was a blatant example of, of what used to be food now becoming fuel. The same thing happened in the U.S. with, with ethanol in more or less the same period, but certainly through the you know, the, the 2007, 8, 9 period. We're, we're now today, you know, 40% of all the corn produced in the U.S. goes to goes to ethanol. Also based on on a green alternative and in, in some ways, I guess, a an energy uh, security play uh, from the perspective of the U.S. Biodiesel in, in, in the U.S. and in South America has been a thing, but not nearly as impactful as it was in Europe. And now we're in front of another stage of the the food and fuel rocket, which is renewable diesel in the United States in particular, where depending on who you talk to, it could have a, an absolute profound impact on not only the types of crops we grow, but also the need for building more processing capacity for whether it's soybeans or canola seed, refining capacity to feed those renewable diesel plants to the point where I think it's not out of uh, the realm of possible that within the next three to four years, you could see an expansion of the U.S. crushing industry by as much as 50%. And that is, that is, that is not counting all the projects that are contemplated. Uh, contemplated. And, and, and with that comes, of course, another, another phase of you know, food versus fuel debate. But we can get into that a little bit later, I suppose. But the point is that you've got this underlying demand that I think is pretty much uh, intact and robust will continue that three to five percent per annum uh, for the foreseeable future and then you have on top of that with seemingly sort of you know five six seven year intervals another shift in demand boost based on food 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 becoming fuel essentially and that that is now you know entering a new phase that one of the reasons why you know crushing margins refining margins and frankly the price of soybeans combination perhaps also of of, of less than optimal crops in South America, but the underlying demand outlook is just so, so strong because of this. So it's a spicy moment because, you know, food inflation is obviously a, a big topic, a, a big concern, not only for, for us here, but particularly for those who live in countries where income is, is less and where a much bigger portion of the monthly budget goes to food. And to see that now becoming fuel in a, in a more substantial way is concerning. Yeah, I think that paints a really excellent picture of why there's increasing demand, the demographic base to it. You've also got, as you say, this huge rise in, in biofuels driven ultimately by regulation and, and other incentives. But can you just, I think it's important just to tease out, though, that you mentioned there's also a shift as countries become wealthier, growing middle class in the type of food that is consumed and where the demand sits. Can you just zoom in very quickly on that shift from carbohydrates to proteins and, and what that means, because ultimately proteins are harder to produce and more expensive to produce. Yeah. Well, I mean, China is, a, is an excellent example of that. The Middle East is the same. I mean, those are really the two big pockets of demand growth where 
so much of the calorie intake historically has been based on on carbs, bread, essentially, various forms of bread or rice. And, um, you know, that's enough to make you feel, you know, feel full and, and gives you a certain amount of calories per day. But it is not necessarily what a more affluent consumer wants. You know, you 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 will want uh, more protein so whether that is chicken or beef or pork aquaculture or fish for that matter in in its various forms and of course the you know the quick service restaurant industry of, of fast food if you want is is one 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 way in which that is manifesting itself and you can see how how that type of consumption is is growing so rapidly in all those kind of emerging emerging economies uh, so it is a shift towards essentially protein that is, you know, it is a more complicated way of getting a calorie. Of course, protein is an essential building block for muscle. So you, you need it. There's no doubt about it. But it becomes the preferred intake. Obviously, to produce those proteins, you're using underlying grains and carbohydrates, right? So it's just increasing. It's a force multiplier for the demand that's out there. Yes. And so, of course, to fuel the production of all those proteins, uh, you need carbohydrates, but you need also vegetable proteins such as soybeans and other types of protein-rich crops. And that is why you have seen such a proportional shift towards growth in those crops on a global basis. It does strain the system when you have to produce more meat. There's no doubt about it. And you look at beef production, for example, it is that is where everybody's eyes are at the moment. Not only does it pollute methane emissions are significant but the amount of water and the amount of grain it takes to produce a pound or a kilo of meat is absolutely staggering so it it kind of boosts demands for all those all those crops uh, as you shift consumption from carbohydrates to to proteins so that's that's happening in the sort of emerging markets and in the more established markets, uh, U.S. is probably the best example, and I think many trends start, and of course Europe uh, is, is is right thereafter, is a um, amongst especially the younger generation a movement towards alternative proteins, which in a way is part of the solution going forward. So whether it's plant-based burgers, as an example, but plant-based anything really, that is becoming, just like the alternative milk industry, uh, has become a significant trend. And although I think it is still in the you know few percentage points now of total meat consumption that is in the form of alternative protein, if you look at alternative milk, you can see where things are going. Not hard to believe that uh, or to imagine that within the next three to five years, you'll be approximately between 5 and 10% of total consumption will come in the form of alternative protein. So there are shifts going on inside of the sort of established economies also towards different types of food. And that is based primarily on a view towards sustainability, what's good for the planet, climate change and so forth. But it's also a view on, on, on health and nutrition, uh, what is good for you. And it's a combination of those two things that, you know, is really driving the trend in, in the established economy, so to speak. But you have, two, you have both things going on. You have a shift towards the traditional protein in many emerging markets. And then you have within the established markets a movement from the established protein into the traditional protein into alternative proteins. And those are both fascinating trends and mean a significant challenge for the for the entire food production system but you know it's a positive challenge in that if we do it right we will solve some climate issues we will most likely improve the health 
of the consumers that we ultimately are here to serve. So it's a it's a fascinating challenge. It's all happening at the same time. And it's interesting to note, and it's a whole other episode, and but the that alternative protein movement is largely driven by consumer choice incentives around carbon avoidance. You know, so when we start seeing actual incentives come in, rewarding the carbon not produced in the form of plastics or in the form of whatever it might be for the biosolution you're you're pointing it toward, that could really take off. But okay, so before we took the current lens on ESG and this world phenomenon that is, you know, is really taking root, how historically have we met that ever-growing, increasing demand? Well, part of the beauty of the global agricultural system or trade system, so to speak, is that it's been incredibly efficient at translating price signals from consumer to the farmer. And I think that will remain, you know, a, a key thing for basically sending the signals to those who produce as to what they should produce and how much. So price is really the first key element in creating the balancing acts between supply and demand globally. And of course, your crops are grown every every six months someplace in the world. So it's not instantaneous, but over a period of a year or two, it's been it's been remarkable how farmers around the world generally have been able to you know, shift between crops and increase acreage when the markets have called for it. At the same time as consumers, when prices are high, find ways of perhaps consuming a little bit less, wasting less, perhaps consuming something different. And it's those those translate those translations between supply and demand are really carried out by you know the the, the companies uh, and the actors in the global in on the global trade scene remarkably efficient and i think if there's one really good thing we have to preserve it is that price is global is translated to an origin anywhere in a trans in a, in a transparent way way that farmers will see the result of what goes on at the destination at the consumer side of the equation and can act accordingly. And uh, the ability to secure prices, you know, several months, maybe even a couple of years in advance so that farmers can plan and they can get the financing they need to eventually shift to a different crop or take more land into into cultivation or renew degraded land. I mean, those are also very important enablers, but I'll say price and the fact that most of the global agricultural trade happens in a fairly free and unencumbered way that is really the mm. that's the first thing the second thing of course then has been that throughout this period that's 20 30 years the amount of new technology that has come on to precision ag uh, or production ag in the form of new seeds uh, new inputs precision precision farming uh, all the things you know about uh, has been has allowed us to continue to boost yield and and essentially set new record yields you know every every other every other year or so so massive investments in that another thing that i probably doesn't get it, enough attention but it is absolutely true is the infrastructure that has been built out throughout the world really over the last 20 20 years or so think about south america think about brazil which 20 years ago was really nowhere to be seen on on the global map of uh, soy trade or or exports. Today, the leader uh, by leaps and bounds, and of course that was only possible because infrastructure such as 
ports, interior uh, silos, processing capacity, railroads, all of that was put in place primarily by the private sector over a period of time. But not only in Brazil and Argentina, it's the same. You know, the Black Sea is sort of the recent phenomenon. It's the same thing. Billions and billions of dollars of investment in sort of basic nuts and bolts infrastructure uh, that allowed, you know, this, I always look at it as kind of a, a global conveyor belt of commodities from surplus to deficit regions, that that infrastructure was put in place and allows now for a very, very efficient movement of, of goods from surplus to deficit areas. And and as I said before, with price and free trade, the the, yeah. the actors in the trade are incredibly efficient at redirecting those flows to where it is most efficient. Um, so I think the combination combination of all those things is what has allowed us to essentially meet meet demand over this long period, and it is more of the same, frankly, uh, that we need going going forward. Which, so I think this is the moment that. Because one of the things that can potentially be a threat to that free market and that very efficient pricing mechanism offered by the global trade houses and just the structure of AGs, in comparison to some extent to oil, where you have OPEC and so forth, and on the metals side where you've got other challenges, the last time we saw, well, AG inflation, as you alluded to at the very start, has profound and immediate consequences on polities, which could in part then threaten some of the fundamental basics that have enabled agricultural markets to meet that demand. Could you, so the last time we really saw this was, you know, 2011, and there's ties to the Arab Spring. And so could you just take us back briefly to that moment, the last time we saw high prices, and what that what we sort of can divine from that moment, because that might be relevant to in the future? Oh, I think it is very relevant. And we, we see signs of you know, not good things already happening <laughs> as a consequence of, of of high prices. Yeah, I mean, you go back back in history, and you're right. Sort of 2008, I guess, in the case of wheat, and maybe 2011, 12, in the case of corn and soybeans, was when we saw prices that were at the levels they are now. And in many in many parts of the world, you mentioned Arab Spring, but I think most of Asia, certainly China, who were already on a path towards food security uh, as a as a national priority. That just got heightened even more so. You know, political instability because you because food all of a sudden costs three times more than it did, and people don't have the money to get it, or just the inability to get it. Period. I mean, the kind of political instability that that creates is any any government's nightmare. We know the parts of the world where this is the biggest risk, and you know it is it is clearly China, and it is in most of the Middle East. Frankly, that's where the the big challenge lies. So. The risk is during periods like this where you have food inflation and countries that are sitting on the surpluses. You can look at Russia as a good example in the case of wheat. But, you know, you could also look at, at places like Argentina in the past, uh, in the case of corn, where where governments say, listen, we have to protect our own first. Uh, we, we have to keep local food inflation under control. Uh, that means we will then put in place export quotas or we'll put significant export taxes on what we export, thereby suppressing or depressing local prices as a way of fighting food inflation. That becomes one one avenue of, of, of a political kind of move that at the end of the day hurts the world because now that surplus is no longer available to the global trade and it then amplifies you know the inflationary impact everywhere else it might protect 
a, a Russian consumer for a short period of time, but the but the, the, but the spillover effect globally is is far outweighs uh, in a negative way that benefit. So that's the risk. The risk is that you end up with some form of protectionism uh, from those countries that are sitting on surpluses in an in an effort to protect their own, I suppose, because inflation is a challenge for everybody. The other thing that happens is that you know food security again becomes a you know a heightened priority, and you can. You can see that uh, certainly in China, but I think you can see it throughout most of the Middle East as well. The amount of money that is being put into partnerships, acquisitions, ways of creating alternatives or just simply accessing food globally uh, is is astounding. And of course, completely understandable uh, that that is a priority, but it can also have the impact of of distorting distorting trade. But I think the, the biggest issue is that you end up you, you can end up with the situation where protectionism uh, on the part of exporters becomes a almost a political weapon. And we went we weren't far from it a few years ago with the you know the trade negotiations with with, with China. Of course, prices were much lower then. But the fact that you know the fact that it could have been a case that China couldn't access U.S. soybeans, for example, that was a major issue. And uh, I think the the worst thing that can happen to global trade and global agriculture is that the confidence in the ability to access you know surpluses wherever they may exist in the world is no longer there uh, and that people end up having to essentially i would say uh, hoard commodities to create buffers of of food security all that will do is you know send this thing into another spiral uh, higher yeah. would really be a bad outcome but it is a risk, and, and I think as you as you look as you look forward, you know it is. It I mean it's already it is already happening. You know, it's, it's every other day you you read about export quotas for wheat in Russia. I just read an article about how fertilizer exports, both from from China and also from from Russia, uh, are being uh, are being essentially not blocked, but made very very difficult in an effort to reduce the price of fertilizer in those markets, uh, so that local farmers can you know can uh, can derive the benefit but the cost the consequence of it of course is that global fertilizer prices are going through the roof and that and volatility and, and yeah and that that adds another layer of, of cost and you know another boost to the commodity inflation thing so it's it's um at, at the highest level protectionism blockage in terms of free trade translation of price and tapping into surpluses wherever they may exist if that if that gets messed up in a fundamental way, I think we're in trouble. I don't think that will happen, uh, but you can see that you know when we've been close or when it has happened, even in a small way, the impacts are profound. So yeah, because we only had a glimpse of it, right? I mean, this is the this is kind of the worrying thing about what you're what you're talking to, is that we had those three four years when in the late 2010s, you know, when we had this sorry the late 2000s when we had this and we immediately did see we saw you know uh, sovereign backed startups kofco etc you know looking to secure have you know um, build their own less independent supply sources and you saw a wave of political uprisings and and, and so forth that was you know we, we but we didn't see the full extent because very quickly we were back in a trough of the commodity super cycle that affected all commodities but we had that period of low prices that period of low prices in the 2010s 
has kind of exacerbated the situation because you've had fewer there's there's a talent story there fewer individuals are in these markets understand the mechanisms the global mechanisms of of the of the agricultural markets but also you know you've had as a consequence less investment particularly in the producing regions like brazil argentina that will have a profound or an exacerbating impact as we come back into another period of high prices which may last a lot longer given the confluence of biofuels alternative proteins, alternative uses for agricultural products, and changing demand. It, it paints quite a scary picture. Yeah, I don't want to sound too draconian, but it, but it is, we have in the past just started feeling the impacts of these kinds of changes, protectionism around global trade and food. And we, we never saw the full extent, you're absolutely right, because the high prices ultimately did what they always do, encourage, encourage production and and, and and somehow slowed the rate of growth in, in demand. And we built surpluses again and prices went down. But we were pretty close to some, you know, some spicy moments back then. And I can certainly see the same thing happening now because as you said, it, it does look like this is this is a multi-year, this is not a short cycle this time. And I think the reason that it isn't is because the renewable diesel in particular, but the biofuels in general is is such a massive demand driver on top of everything else and the amount of money that is being committed to that sector by the big oil companies which was not the case in the past in fact they didn't like the competition now they're embracing it because it is viewed as a climate solution for them so the amount of money that's going into that part of the the industry is 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 significant and one reason why I believe that, certainly in the case of, of oil seeds, uh, it'll it'll be it'll be many years uh, of of high prices. I don't know if they'll stay exactly where they are now, but certainly significantly above trend line. And so that will have spillover effects on on all the other crops that compete for acreage. So I I think we are looking at a multi-year period here of high prices, and there is a risk that the politics of it all, whether it's fighting inflation at origin or whether it is just exercising the power of the politics of sitting on surpluses that others want to have in this world of, generally speaking, less cohesion that we sit in today, that food essentially becomes a little bit of a political weapon uh, as, as, you know, we were close to it, kind of escaped it, but now I think we're back to it again. Yeah. Okay. So, you have sat and you sit in the boardrooms of organizations across this the, the agricultural supply chain you paint a very clear picture of sustained increase in demand and from from a variety of angles how can and how should the agricultural markets respond to tackle this well it's it's not one thing it's it's many it's many things I think the the first thing is is again translating the signals to the farmer has become ever more complicated because it's no longer just grow enough beans or grow enough corn. It is do it sustainably. It is eventually also grow this type of soybean or this type of oil seed, you know, to meet consumer demands for something that is perhaps an alternative protein. So I think there's a you know, whereas the last many, many years, maybe 40 years, 50 years, was all about commoditization, uh, standardization, producing the same thing everywhere in large and larger volumes. 
I think there's also a, a, a decommoditization process taking place now where we will be talking about different types of crops, more specialty crops to cater to the, let's say, the consumer tastes that, that we know are out there and the trends around health and wellness and sustainability, all at the same time as, as, as we have to produce just enough, enough calories. And so that translating mechanism from consumer to farmer is more complicated now, I think, than it ever has been. And the, you know, the intermediaries, whether that's the great big grain companies or farm organizations, uh, you know, some of the government institutions around the world certainly have a role to play in this, uh, but it is not, it's not business as usual. I think somehow uh, figuring out ways where uh, farmers have easier access and eventually the financing that, that they need uh, to shift uh, farming practices, to try new crops, to try new inputs is, is going to big be, a, be a big enabler. I mean, no one company can solve that. That becomes more of a kind of a platform, not, not a platform play, but it's the entire sector that has to find the, the mechanisms of translating new technology onto, you know, what does it really mean in practice on a, on a field of soybeans or corn, someplace in the middle of the U.S. So there's a lot of education. There's a lot of, and I, th I actually see that happening. So that's the good news. The question is whether it's happening fast enough. And that's I yeah. think, ultimately the, the question. We have all the tools. We have, all, we, we, we have the technology. There's more new technology and new ways of doing things coming at us and we know how to actually digest it's just that it takes long, takes a long time to translate all these new technologies and new trends into actual results on the ground. And the reason for that is the crop cycle. It's it's a combination of the crop cycle and the fact that for many individual farmers, some of these decisions are the generational type decisions. You know, do I go from producing how I have for the last twenty years to now, you know, endeavoring into regenerative farming, for example? That's a transition for you know, at least five years, maybe more. So those decisions are not easy ones. So the the combination of the of the crop cycle, the fact that it's a it's a year between the crops in most places, and the fact that you know some of these bigger decisions are you know multi year decisions that have impact on a on a farming family for 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 many years to come, means that it is it takes longer than you want for all this new technology that is out there and will actually allow us to produce in a sustainable way what we need it takes longer than you'd like for it to to actually hit the ground so to speak um, and i think that is probably the biggest challenge uh for the industry is how to how, how to how to move faster and i don't have the answer in, in how to how to do that i don't know that anybody really does uh, but i think uh certainly the the large well-established ag and food companies have a huge role to play in this because they touch, they touch the entire value chain, and for them to be the conduit for new technology, new ways of doing things, I think would be the most efficient. Obviously, startups and smaller companies can can do that as well. But if you want to do things at scale, which is what we need, you have to have the you know the large, well-established companies in the world of food. And I think perhaps supported by incentives through the government in the U.S., it would be the USDA, for example, around carbon farming practices, maybe financing to facilitate, you know, a shift in, in practice. All those things have to work together 
for us to to get where we want to. And when we do, I think we'll be solving not only the ability for us to produce enough, but I do believe that we will also be part of agriculture, will be part of the climate discussion uh, in a meaningful way. Uh, and, and I do believe that that we can, on top of that, actually produce healthier and more nutritious food. So the price to do this right is enormous. But I think it's it, it is a combination of it's the whole ecosystem. It's government, it's large ag, uh, it's startup, everybody finding ways to work together and not necessarily, you know, what I think the industry has been famous for over many years is, you know, we have to do it all ourselves. You know, I think this is the time for collaboration. This is the time for venturing together, risking a few things together. And for the big companies and I think for for government where it's, where it's, um, where it's possible, to help facilitate all this, you know, no one can do it alone. But the price is huge in a positive way if we can do it. Yeah, it's fascinating because this is a takeaway I had from the Barrett Bar episode we did on on agri technology. Yeah. Is you kind of had this idea that um, sustainability would reduce crop yields, right? You know, be less intensive, organic, all these things. But actually, there's a huge opportunity there. Is you know, just looking at your notes as well, right? Ultra precision farming drones of harvesters going up and down fields, not damaging the soil, electric powered, and that micronutrition aspect of, of really enhancing yields that way, which as you say is very expensive. The other thing that struck me is we come back to this word quite often on this podcast, that decommoditization of commodities. That's going on in metals, that's going on in energy, as we care more about the provenance and the attributes. And that's sort of supercharged in the ag world, right? The You've got different types of soybean producing different types of oils depending on the market that they're in. Can you just dig into that a little? Because that would have you know, a profound effect on a market that's highly efficient, very, relatively few pricing points on very transparent exchanges. Can you just talk to that a little bit? Sure. There's a lot in this, Paul. Uh, I, I would, I mean, there's no doubt true that part of the efficiency of global ag and food over the last 20, 30 years, maybe more, was the standardization, was creating infrastructure, you know, whether it's port silos, collection points, transportation, that basically allowed us to commingle everything of the same type of commodity. And that added significant efficiencies, uh, not only not only at, at, the, at the point of production, but also the point of processing and transport. The moment you start breaking up these value chains into you know, components uh, that cater to consumer taste, whether that is directly or whether it's indirectly through you know, a feed conversion, you lose efficiency, no doubt about it. You, you lose capacity when you decommoditize. So therein lies a challenge. And I think finding the right sort of the sweet spot where you can still decommoditize to some extent, create alternative income streams for farmers so that they become less reliant on just a couple of crops. I mean, I think that is that is definitely a way of the future, but not to the point where you end up with a with a you know mosaic of supply chains uh, that that clocks up the system and, and makes you know, makes it inefficient. So, you know, where exactly that point is, I don't know. But we have examples of where decommoditizing crops, I can give you an example, for example, um, hyolate canola seed, you know, produced predominantly in, in Canada, was 10 years ago, a specialty crop, you know, it had a particular 
oil content that was good for, for food service and was considered healthier commanded a premium. Initially, it, it had the effect of probably reducing efficiency of the system. But now, fast forward 10 years, you're talking about producing what was a specialty crop over millions of acres. And so, you know, now you have actually created a specialty at scale like the commodity itself. And therefore, the incremental cost of doing so has gone down and is 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 ins- insignificant. So we have to, we do have to decommoditize because the consumers are calling for it. And I think for farmers, it's the right thing to do. They need to diversify their income in, in a better way than they've been able to do so far. But we can't go so far as to as to make the system inefficient. And I don't think that's where we are at today at all. I mean, predominantly, you know, 95% of everything that is moved around the world or in, in the interior of the United States is still very commoditized. So we're a long way from that. But you can begin to see some of these close loop systems uh, producing specialty high protein soybeans, for example. But the same thing, wheat is a good example of that, that as well. And perhaps with renewable diesel, we will see other crops uniquely produced for that. It's beginning, you know, but I think we are far from we are far from uh, the, the point where we are causing extra cost upon the system. But if it goes too far, you could. So it's it's finding the right balance again, so that we don't we don't hinder the efficiencies of you know what was so good in the in the current system, but at the same time create the the need for farmers to diversify and 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 the the obvious desire by consumers to eat things that are good for them yeah it also brings in actually this is where a lot of agri-tech or commodity technology is focused on at the moment is is using new technologies like blockchain to trace and track what would be a much more complex world and you're seeing that already in the likes of Covantis and a few others that are partnering in the ag industry two final points The first one is, it seems to me that such a big part of this story is biofuels. Do you see, which again, as I stated, you know, is ultimately driven by regulation and the incentives or disincentives put off that, you know, towards sustainability. What is the future of biofuels? Is there a possibility that if we face, sorry, I know this is a big question, but we face huge ag inflation and you might see those supporting policies change i mean it, it seems to be you know these oil companies are making big bets here right and i think it is you know it's, it's probably what happens when you have sort of two two industries colliding around the same topic and where i mean the big oil is by any stretch so much bigger than than ag uh, so if they throw what they consider to be a modest amount of money at something <laughs> that is for ag enormous and i think that's what's happening right now it's it's, it just feels a little bit out of proportion to be honest but i really don't know what the future is but i do i do worry that the linkage between food and fuel becomes uh, so inflexible you know mandates mandates are tricky it feels like a good thing when prices are low but when you're forced to produce something when prices are actually telling you that you probably shouldn't then it becomes an uncomfortable discussion between food and fuel. And, and I think that that won't go away. So I think, you know, somehow flexibility around targets is, is probably the right way to, 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 to think about it. But I also think that it's, um, I mean, it's not all bad. So, for example, you know, what comes out of a soybean, uh, which is sort of the, the target for a lot of the, the new re- renewable diesel, I mean, the soybean oil, I mean, you know, it's, it's 20% or 18% oil. The rest is protein. 
and protein and carbohydrate. Well, I mean, every time you produce, you know, a ton of oil, you'll produce four tons of protein that essentially can be used to feed animals or can be used in food applications. So it will drive expansion in, in oilseed acreage for sure. Oil is the key, the key in all this, but the byproduct, you know, perversely enough, enough because soybeans were not meant to be the source of oil, but the byproduct will become protein. And that that can have a benefit, I suppose, someplace along the lines. But what I hope will happen is that whether it is ethanol or whether it is whether it is renewable diesel, is that over time, and I don't think there's a lot, you know, a year or two, the value chains, you know, starting with the farm where you produce either soybeans or frankly, in my view, it should be something else in soybeans. It should probably be canola, or it could be a cover crop like covercress, another source of oil that is more efficient than the soybean. Well, you can you can map the chain out essentially from from the farm and how that grain or how that oil seed is grown, all the way through its processing steps, and really be convinced that the combination of farming methods and the type of seed and how it is included in fuel is truly sustainable and a much better alternative than you know fossil fuel that i haven't seen that done a lot of what is happening right now is on the back of the low carbon fuel standard in california right uh, that's everything is built around that because that's seemingly the, the the gold standard but i don't know that it was created with the magnitude in mind of what is now happening so I would hope that the, the companies, whether it's the oil companies or the ag companies or the combination of both, will be able to demonstrate that this really does make sense. I just haven't seen that yet, but I'm sure I'm sure it's coming. I mean biofuels will definitely have a have, have a place have a place in the future of whether it's ethanol or whether it is renewable diesel. And I, I have no doubt about that. But I think it'll become we will need more good documentation, uh, study demonstration that this really is the right thing to be spending agricultural resources on in the long run in order to avoid it becoming the type of debate that we you mentioned you know food versus fuel and that it can then therefore quickly change because it is it is not uh, it is happening on the back of regulation and regulation can change as we know and uh, it's a scary thought that could change after you have just expanded capacity by 50%, you know, and it's a tricky one, but I imagine that all those, those big investors in this new, new stage of biofuels, they, 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 I'm sure they're all, they're all thinking about how they can, you know, how, how this truly is long-term viable. I, I certainly hope they are because I think they will need it uh, in order to defend, you know, what's, what, what's going on at the moment. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it, how the LCFS has had such a profound impact on this particular slice of the ag industry. And like yeah. I said earlier on, like if we were to see real incentives come in for bioplastics, right, other forms of carbon avoidance, that to me would seem like it would have an even more profound impact, right? But it's not, you know, Paul, it's like you said, you know, it, it's just that the impact, if you say, okay, what can we do from a, you know, from a, if you're sitting in the, in, in in the from the perspective of the of big oil you know what can we do to become greener and say okay we can we can do we can do this uh, renewable diesel thing well the the translation of just a small percentage of their their blend into the agricultural world is just out of proportion with what 
you know, I, I think the agricultural sector can cope with. It, it is, I mean, the, the global oil markets are just that big. And, and so I think the trans, translating mechanism between, you know, what is perceived as a good thing and then how it actually rolls out, that has maybe not been fully studied yet. And I don't, I can't imagine that the low carbon fuel standard in California, as it was initially, you know, conceived, was with it with this magnitude in mind and it, as you said you know you can add other things on top of it and and suddenly we'll be producing half of the world's crops for for non-food users which it, which would be terrible so we, we can't do that so it's i think it's just you know proportions uh, are out of whack a little bit and at the same time though i i i do think that there there can there should be things that that, for example, government, USDA, in the case of, of here, uh, does to encourage farming practices that will make renewable diesel even more sustainable. So, you know, regenerative type farming methods that do not have to be at the expense of yield, you know, is a bit of a bet if you are a farmer, but many have proven that it works. It takes time to get there. And if on top of that, you can sequester carbon, which I believe you can, you know, all that's really missing is the standard for how you monetize it and perhaps some financial assistance uh, to facilitate a change in, in how you go about farming. And that's where I think government, USDA, in, in our case, really does have a role to play. So I think, I think at the end of the day, th this can all work, but it won't work if everybody just sort of does their own thing. It's interesting, a comment from our side is that uh, I think a good 50% of the searches we're undertaking right now globally in our liquid fuels practice is tied to, in some form or another, biofuels. So it's, uh, it, as you say, it's having a profound impact. Final question. So this is also a huge opportunity, whether that's from a technological solution standpoint, from purely a market solution. You, you have a clear sight to increasing demand, and you've got all of these changes going on at once. Have the capital markets woken up to this yet? Are we seeing inbound investment is coming in after what has been kind of a bit of a lackluster decade for the, the, the ag houses and the ag markets in general? I think the amount of capital that wants to be invested in all this new ag food fuel tech is, you know, sustainability as the common denom denominator is I would say almost, almost limitless. So I don't think there's there's any issue in terms of accessing capital. I think the the challenge really is how long it takes to scale some of these new technologies. I think it's proving to be more of a challenge. And so you know exits from companies that started uh, whether you know whether that's being acquired or whether that is finally getting the profitability or going this back route or or whatever. I mean it it is it is relatively. My impression is that it is not as liquid, there's not as much exit happening as, as investors would like to see. And, and part of the reason for that, I think, is, is that it, takes, it just takes longer. The agricultural chain, the way things happen, nature is a big piece of it. Uh, you, you're talking in many ways to you know, individual family farmers who have to make you know, big decisions and may not do it so quickly. Where, where change is happening the fastest is at the consumer side. That's almost instantaneous. But the rest of the value chain, back to the field, so to speak, it's just a it's a long process. And yeah. I think that is where that's that's where the trouble is. It takes longer than anybody wants uh, for for these new technologies to actually be deployed and, and, and prove that they work. 
So I don't think it is a matter of, of, of lack of capital. It's just that it takes long. And maybe our expectations of you know, time frame you know, has to change a bit. Maybe you could see over time, you know, many of the incumbent larger companies being acquirers and incorporating more and more of that new technology into their platforms. I think that would be the most efficient way, frankly, of uh, adopting new technology. That has happened to a not a very large extent. And part of that, of course, is that up until two years ago, the entire sector was suffering from that, you know, five, six year of low prices and poor margins. So the money wasn't there for them to acquire. But, you know, now that times are good and, and margins are, are looking pretty fantastic as far as you can see, maybe some of the, the larger incumbents in the ag food industry will become more active in, in, in acquiring new technology, facilitating the integration of new technology in their platforms. And with that, the system of you know investing and then exiting can take on a different pace. It has to. I think it has to be something like that, but it's not for lack of capital. And yeah. it, absolutely not. It's scaling that's the challenge. It's interesting, isn't it? Because that's also, and I've had these discussions, you know, with other individuals. You know, the energy industry profoundly isn't used to the idea of crops and growing, you know, <laughs> crop cycles. No. That's right, and you know, in in their world, you, you turn it on, and the oil flows. So there's a there's a, a learning curve there for the energy industry as it starts to access this space. Well, it's been a, a fascinating discussion. I've really enjoyed it. You know, I think it's uh, obviously an ongoing story and one that's filled with opportunity, but also risk as well. If inflation really does start uh, impacting the structure of the market as we face it today, right? No doubt. Yeah, I mean, it's it's a fascinating moment. I, I can't, in my 30, whatever, 7, 38 years in the industry, I can't imagine, I can't think of a moment that has had more potential, more possibilities than we have right now in ag and, ag and food and energy. And that combo of climate, nutrition, and still producing enough is fascinating. But it is it is a way to reinvent, I think, not only, I mean, all the, all the way from the farm level, through to the consumer, reinvent how things get done, and perhaps at the end of this, come up with a system, global system in ag and food that is that is actually more resilient, uh, more diversified, and more food secure. But it's a, it'll be an interesting period here as we transition into that. Well, thank you very much for your time. It's been really enjoyable, and I hope to have you back on in the future and and see where we stand. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode and want to support the show, please give us a positive review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. To find out more about HC Insider and Human Capital, a search firm dedicated to the commodities sector, go to www.hcinsider.global, where you'll find more original content on the commodities sector and more details on our offerings as a search firm and our locations around the world. Thanks again for listening.